All right, so it's Father's Day. And I had, this, uh, I had this great plan to sprinkle dad jokes throughout my sermon. But I figured it'd be too much for y'all. So I'm just going to hit you with them all up front, all right? <laughs> Here we go. Did you hear about the red and blue ships that collided? All the sailors were marooned. <laughs> my neighbor gave me a new roof for free. He said it was on the house. <laughs> did you hear about the teenager who failed his driving tests? I did. <laughs> he thought it was a crash course. <laughs> Where do surfers learn to surf? At boarding school. <laughs> All right, uh, this, one, this one's almost too bad. What do you call a wizard who's good with ceramics? Harry Pottery. <laughs> Why did the tourist feel disappointed upon seeing the Liberty Bell? It wasn't all it was cracked up to be. <laughs> How do Vikings... <laughs> These are just amazing. How do Vikings communicate with one another? By Norse code. <laughs> How did Benjamin Franklin feel when he discovered electricity? He was shocked. <laughs> and then we have to have a basketball one. Why don't the other farm animals like playing basketball with pigs? They're ball hogs. <laughs> okay, so they're all, I'm not promising I won't have a couple more, but vast majority they're out. Okay, we're looking at Colossians today. We're continuing on uh, in the same passage that we looked at last week. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in that order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the best father of all. You are an amazing father and that you've adopted us into your family. What a privilege. 
Lord, we pray your blessing upon um, all the fathers today, upon all uh, the families today. Bless them, God, and we rejoice um, in the gift that you've given us of family, of uh, husbands and wives, of walking in unity, Lord. God, um, bless our children as they're back learning about you. Bless our kids in the nursery as even they are learning about you. And we want them to see their hearts fast attached to you. So may our hearts be fast attached to you, Lord, that we might be an example unto them. Lord, open up our eyes, fill us with your spirit to understand your word, strengthen us to follow it and walk it out. Amen. Okay, so last time uh, we looked at the different um, things that Paul was emphasizing in the first chapter of Colossians and how the focus really started out on the ministry that he and Timothy were doing and how the Colossians were uh, getting along and kind of giving them an update as to what was, what was going on with their ministry. Then it really leads up to the focus, which is starting in verse 15, which is Christ, and we get about nine verses there extolling the amazingness of Christ and his beauty and his excellency. Then, which we've been looking at now, it really shifts back to Paul in, in some sense, focusing on himself, we looked at all the first-person singulars that he uses in these uh, roughly um, 10 verses here of, I rejoice in my sufferings, I am filling up what is lacking, and all the eyes. But here's the thing. When he talks about himself, the focus is actually not really on him, because as we're going to see today, it's really on believers and his heart for them. Now, um, there's something in uh, literature that is not very common in the English language called a chiasm. And a standard definition for, the, for it is a writing style that uses a unique repetition pattern for clarification and emphasis. So when people write today, they, they probably aren't even thinking of it, um, and thus it doesn't happen. But it's essentially a repetition of similar ideas um, that goes forward, and then the sequence reverses, and it goes, and, it, and then it walks down. A lot of times, what we think of when we're, when we're writing a paragraph, because you have to remember, they didn't really have that concept of grammar back then, of punctuation or paragraphs, but when we write, uh, you know, we've all taken, hopefully, a writing class, and it's like, you know, you have your intro sentence, and then you got to have the meat, and you got to have a little wrap-up. That's not really how the, the, the Greeks, and even the Hebrews, um, thought. Um, their thought was a lot of times more that the climax of, of a passage or the paragraph would actually occur in the middle. So you'd kind of build up to it, and then you'd walk away from it. And we're actually seeing this occur here. So if you were trying to explain it, um, and, and it would take a little bit longer, so I've, I've kind of watered it down some. Basically, you'd have your first idea, and a lot of times you'll see that represented by the letter A. So A is the first idea, B would be the second idea in the paragraph, and then C would be the key thought. Okay, first thought, second thought, key thought. But then what happens is it walks itself backwards. So you got A, B, C, but then it goes back to B, and it repeats the second thought, and then it goes back to A, and it repeats the first thought. So A, B, C, B, A. You with me so far? If you want the kind of technical nerdy definition, it's just the use of bilateral symmetry about a central axis. All right. Why was it used? 
Um, one, it provided an element of internal organization in ancient writings. Again, they didn't have the paragraphs, they didn't have the punctuation, but also it was a great mnemonic device. So without the ability sometimes to take notes, they used this uh, chiasm or chiasmus for memorization. Because if you think about it, once the person had the first part of it in their mind, then, then they could get the second part pretty quickly. Because it's just a repetition of sorts. The other thing is that, that the Greeks were trained differently. Um, their alphabet, you know, we always teach kids A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Uh, they taught their kids that as well, but they actually taught them the alphabet backwards. A lot of people can't do the alphabet backwards, um, including myself. But they also taught the alphabet um, both ways at the same time. So it'd be like A, Z, B, Y, going to the middle. So they, they kind of thought a little bit differently. Well, how does this, how does this idea of, of chiasm or chiasmus, um, how does it help us? Well, for the single guys, it's a great way to impress a lady. <laughs> you tell them this, and I guarantee you a first date, okay? <laughs> Second, and really first, um, it helps us see units of thought in the text. It points out the central focus of the text, and it helps us in understanding the corresponding subunits. In other words, the meaning of A is complemented by the A that gets repeated. The meaning of B is complemented um, by the B that gets repeated, and then we see the C. Now, that's like the simplest chiasm there is. Some of them that you see, and they're actually all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, some of them that you see, um, I mean, it goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then it, you, know, you got the central point, and then it walks itself back. Uh, some theologians argue that certain books of the Bible are an entire chiasm. Yeah, so the entire book, like, uh, you know, take the book of Esther, it kind of leads up, and then it kind of walks away. Anyway, it's, uh, it's actually fascinating. You can see more clearly at points the reader's thought, or excuse me, the writer's thought as they're writing the scripture. So what are we seeing, how are we seeing it here um, I'll try my best to point it out because we're dealing with the 10 verses, but look back in verse 24. So notice that he says, I rejoice in my sufferings uh, for your sake. That's going to be, we're going to call that the A. And then the B is going to be picked up in verse 27, where it starts, it says, he talks about making known among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery. So A, make uh, rejoice in my sufferings. B, make known the mystery. C, um, is the riches of the glory of this mystery. So A, rejoice in the sufferings. B, make known, because we're going to see all these repeated in a second. C is, we're still in 27, the riches of the glory of this mystery. And then here is actually where this passage is working towards. And it's in verse 29. The toil and the struggling. That's really what it leads up to. We see it in 29. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that I power for the works within me. And then he's going to start to back down again. Verse 1, chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle, same word, being repeated. So he's walking it down, how great a struggle I have. Then, notice what he does in verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Well, what is, we just had riches mentioned in verse 27, the riches of the glory. So that's your, that's your complementariness there with those. 
B, if you remember, was make known the mystery. Well, in verse 2, it talks about the knowledge at the very end of the verse, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then he kind of wraps it up in verse 5 with what is he talking about again? He's rejoicing. Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing. So he starts with the rejoicing. He builds it up with the main focus being his toil and struggle for the Colossians. And then he walks it back away, complimenting it as he walks it back down. Here's the thing. When he talks here in verse 29 and in verse 1 of chapter 2, when he says, for this I toil, struggling with all this energy, a lot of times when we hear the word struggle, we think of something that's negative, like, oh, I'm struggling in my walk with the Lord. I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling at work. That is not the idea here. He's not like struggling to try to make it. Not at all. Um, it's the idea of labor and work. Sometimes it's used in athletic competitions. Like there's, there's a labor going on. There's a work going on. They're struggling within the competition to try to win the game. That is a better idea. He's doing everything he can. He's struggling. He's toiling. He's working to help the Colossians grow. So what is Paul's struggle centered on? Well, the focus here is on the struggle against the opponents to Jesus and for the Colossians. So there's a struggle against. He's fighting. He's struggling. This, this heresy has, is starting to creep into the Colossian church. And every church, every church, if it's a biblical church, people, wolves, false teachers will try to infiltrate it at some point. You're like, oh, that couldn't happen here. Well, yeah, it could. If it can happen in the early church, it, it can happen. So there's going to be a struggle. When that, when that occurs, what happens? Well, the leaders, the teachers, the pastors, they have to step up, they have to confront it, they have to deal with it. Sometimes they deal with it, y'all don't ever hear about it. Sometimes it has to get to the point of even church excommunication. So there's a struggle against the opponents that are opposed to Christ and the true gospel, but there's also a struggle for the Colossians. Notice what he says at the very beginning of this passage. Who is he focused on here? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So he's struggling He's laboring, he's toiling. Why? Because he wants to present them perfect in Christ. In other words, he does everything he can to get them mature, established, walking in the faith. And here's his approach. It's not a laid-back approach. It's not like uh, a laissez-faire, you know, approach to economics, uh, which literally means in French, let you do. Basically, leave alone. That's not Paul's approach. It's just like, okay, well, I've kind of given them the instruction and now I'm just going to just back up and just like let the cards fall where they might. I'm going to just leave things alone. No, he's very much involved. He's very much working at this. That's why he says, I toil. I toil. That's why he talks about struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. So here's one point that we can see is, is Paul cares. And he wants them to know how much he cares. That's, again, for this passage, that is actually the, the primary focus of this passage, is how much Paul is working to protect the gospel and to build up believers. Let me just say um, something as a pastor, like this is my heart for, for you all as well, 
to be able to present you, Paul talks about presenting you mature, or some versions say perfect in Christ. And the heart of, of uh, justice in myself is we want to see you all thriving. We want to see you all growing. We want to see you all uh, flourishing. Flourish as disciples, one of the, the key tenets that we have here. Um, I know of many needs, hurts, sufferings, afflictions that you all have. And I want to see you all succeed and grow in grace. Many, many, many of you are. But I don't just want you to make it. You know, you ever see like a race and like the, the person, you know, uh, like falls short, just short of the finish line? Now, I want to see you make it across that finish line. You can color, I mean, sometimes you see it and they, 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 they barely make it, but they do make it. And they collapse afterwards, but they finished the race. But during that race, I mean, you can, you can collapse if you want. That's fine. I'm good with that if you all do that as you finish the race. But during the race, I want to see you thriving. I want to see you thriving during the race. Not just making it, but thriving. And so, I mean, what Paul is really communicating to the Colossians is, it's like he's saying, this is where my heart is for you. And my heart is for you. I'm working, I'm doing everything I can do to help you out. But what else does he know? And here's key. It's all of God. All of God. Yes, he needs to labor and toil, but what is he laboring and toil with? Verse 29, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Whose energy is it? Is it Paul's? No. With all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's the Lord's. It's the Lord's. So Paul's doing everything he can, but he realizes that he is strengthened and empowered to do it by none other than God himself. And here's the thing. The Lord doesn't, doesn't just tell his saints to go. I mean, he tells us to go, right? Matthew 28, he tells us to go. But he doesn't just tell us to go. What does he do? He tells us to go, and then he gives us the means by which to go. His power, his energy, his working, it, it's him. So what's Paul's concern? I mean, the riches of the earth, no. He wants believers walking in truth. Verse after verse after verse after verse. What is his concern? Spiritual growth. What shows spiritual growth? You want to know what shows spiritual growth? Obedience to Christ. Obedience to his commands. But he wants not just outward obedience. The Pharisees had that. Did it do them any good? No. How, how come, did, did this side have coffee this morning? Okay. A plus so far, y'all. Not great in the other sections yet. But not just outward obedience, right? Did that do the Pharisees any good? Man, this was your chance over here, y'all. Come on. There we go. Not just outward. It's the heart, the mind, the will. And here's my question. What wins out each day in your life? Right actions? That's great. But Christ wants more than that. 
He doesn't just want right actions. That's good. He does want that. It's a great start. But what else does he want? He wants right thinking. He wants right intentions. We can do that. We can have right actions with wrong intentions, right? So he doesn't want just the outward. He wants the inward. What does God, man looks at what? The outward. What does God look at? The heart. You're still failing over here, okay. So his first goal that we see here is present everyone mature in Christ. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Not just saved, but mature and maturing. Not just saved, but growing. Not just saved, but becoming more and more sanctified. Not just saved, but becoming more and more conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Amen? Turn to your neighbor and say, is that true of you? See, because people, people think they're mature. People think, I won't even ask you to raise your hand if you're mature or not, okay? <laughs> but people think they're mature. Almost everyone here thinks they're mature. True? Listen, if, if you've been saved just a few years, you're not mature. If you haven't been baptized, you're not mature. If you haven't read through the whole Bible, you're not mature. If you're not regularly reading the Word, you're not mature. If your day-by-day life isn't covered in prayer throughout the day, you're not mature. If your sin doesn't bother you, you're not mature. Yeah, now everybody's quiet. I get it. So Paul's goal is mature believers, people knowing Christ, people growing in their faith. There's two avenues that he, he mentions to accomplish this. One, look back in verse 28. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. So teaching is an avenue. People need instruction. People need instruction. I was talking, I've run into this gentleman um, twice at, at, at Walmart. He's uh, like the, one of the Walmart greeters. Name's Brian, right over here, super nice guy, older gentleman. And I've run into him twice, and I don't think he remembers, he probably greets like so many people, you know, it's been a couple months, so he didn't remember me, which is fine. But, um, I mean, he's a believer, and we're talking, and he's talking about all these different things, about what God's doing, and his, because he's working, and he has to work, uh, unfortunately, uh, at his age, that his schedule doesn't allow him to get to church. I was encouraging him. I was like, where do you go to church? And he told me, and I was encouraging him, and I was like, I'm going to pray. I'm, because clearly, like you can tell, the, the Spirit is resting on this man. Well, that's great, and he probably blesses a whole lot of people at Walmart. Uh, but I told him, you need to be in, in plugged into a church where you can bless those people, and they can bless you as well. Like, you have giftings that they need to receive, and... Those people have giftings that, that you need to receive. It's a two-way street. So I, was, I was encouraging him as, as I was leaving. We talked for like 10 or 15 minutes. I was telling him that I'm going to pray that the Lord opens up his schedule and works it out and, he can, and, and the Lord can figure out a way to get him and open up his schedule for Sunday mornings to be plugged into a church. Why? Because we need the teaching. 
He needs to be hearing the word. You need to be hearing the word. What Matthew Henry said, warning and teaching must go together. So we need the teaching. And oftentimes when it talks about teaching uh, in the New Testament, you'll see other words, and we're going to look at a couple passages, other words that complement or further describe what teaching entails. And in this passage, we see that we need teaching and we need warning. Look, uh, if we just turn one chapter over to Colossians 3, he says something similar. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then look what he says here. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So here it's teaching and admonishing. Okay, Uh, Two chapters earlier, warning and teaching. But notice, well, we'll get to that when we get to chapter 3. But the point is, is that there's teaching, and then there's, you could almost fit some of these things under the subcategory of teaching if you wanted to. But there's warning. Even, even Jesus himself, great teacher, the best, he was a teacher, but did he just um, teach knowledge? No. No, he warned. Look at Mark chapter 12. Verse 35, Mark 12, 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So verse 35, right, he's teaching. But then it goes on in 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. So he's teaching, but what is he also doing? I mean, he's instructing, he's giving knowledge, but he's also warning, right? And at times he's admonishing, at times he's rebuking, at times he's correcting. But in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes. So he's warning them about the scribes. Look at Acts chapter 20. This is Paul speaking, Acts 20, verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, this is Paul, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. I mean, there's the teaching, right? Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. And why is he innocent of the blood of all? Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He gave them the tough words. He gave them the hard words. He gave them the words that they didn't want to hear. And we have it right here in the scriptures for us. The tough words we don't want to hear that we 
need to hear. That's why we read, look at 2 Timothy. That's why we read what it says in 2 Timothy. Second Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then look again. Verse 17. That the man of God may be what? Complete. Your version might say perfect. That the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. You know, Raymond and I were talking uh, about a week ago about preaching and, and different styles and kind of schools of thought with preaching. And there's one school of thought that essentially it's almost like it's just all teaching. And, it, and the idea is, is it's almost like people take that teaching and then they, they know how to apply it themselves in various situations. Well, I mean, that's probably teaching in its most literal sense. Um, and there is a difference between teaching and preaching. But, but if, 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 someone, if a man's going to stand up here and proclaim the word of God, I mean, he needs to say what it says and then, and then say, hey, how does it apply to you today? He needs to uh, be able to address the concerns of what's going on in the, in the culture at large. Because if, if, if it says warn, well, I mean, if you're not, not going to address the concerns at large, then what do you warn about? Right? Um, it's, it's a bad, in my opinion, uh, strongly... Feel that's a bad school of thought just to teach. I mean, I, I could just teach through this stuff and, and never make application um, or just make generalities or not speak to the culture at large. And some people want that. Um, I, I don't think that's the right approach personally. So what do, we, what do we teach and warn of? Well, we teach and warn of false teaching, but we also teach and warn of sin. So the idea is like we teach about marriage but then we warn about the false beliefs and practices of marriage. There's marriage, and then there's so-called gay marriage, which isn't marriage. We teach about marriage, and then we warn against sexual sin. We teach about marriage, and we warn against the corrupted view of marriage presented in the culture. And, and here's the thing. Let me just say this with anything, whether it's finances or, 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 or marriage or your job or anything. Listen, Satan always wants us to take the shortcut. So think about it like Satan in the garden. You know, what's the message? Oh, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. Oh, and here's the shortcut. Like, just eat this little piece of fruit. Problem solved. He always wants us to take the shortcut. Moses in Egypt, God, he knows God's calling him to be a leader. What's his shortcut? Murder the guy. Not a good shortcut. Ananias and Sapphira, finances, right? What's the shortcut? Well, we're, we're just going we're gonna, to we're gonna act like we're giving it all, but we're going to hold some back. Because you never know, right? We've got to have that rainy day fund. Uh, they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't killed for holding anything back. They were killed for lying, okay, just to be clear. But that, the shortcut, hold some back. So when we talk about mature, I've already told you what, it, what it's not. I mean, if you want just one example of mature, it, it'd be standing firm. Will we stand firm when the day of testing comes? Now, we've talked, I've talked a whole lot about the NHL and, and, and the, the, the Pride Nights and different 
um, players refusing to wear the jer jersey. That goes like all the way back to January or February, starting with the one goalie. And then it, it kind of, I mean, one guy stood and then others were emboldened to stand. So back in January and February, unbeknownst to the vast majority of everybody that follows baseball and who doesn't, the Major League Baseball quietly came out and said, we're not going to have any like pride jerseys required this year. All the way back in January or February, of course, we get to June, and everyone's like, where are the pride jerseys? And like, oh, we made that decision way back in January and February. Well, why'd you make that decision? Well, gee, I wonder why. I wonder why. Because people were standing up. Even baseball players last year were refusing to, to wear the little patch on their jersey. So it was quite a decision. No announcement was made. And then if you haven't heard about everything going on with the Dodgers. Have you heard about the Dodgers? Okay. So they're, they're, you know, many, most, actually the Rangers are the only baseball team in Major League Baseball that does not have a Pride Night. Hats off to them. Every other group does, uh, every other team does. The Dodgers had invited um, one group, the, the, the Nuns of Perpetual Indulgence. Now, don't, don't Google it, okay? Uh, you'll see some of the most vile, disgusting things that your mind does not need to see. So not only did they invite them, they, they are going to honor them with this award for their community work. Um, there's then an uproar, so they get uninvited, but then there's an uproar from the other side, so they get re-invited. <clears throat> uh, one Dodger player um, stood up quite boldly, and this is the, the letter that he wrote. I'm going I'm to read it in its entirety. It's a little bit long. Uh, Dodger pitcher, Blake Trainin. I am disappointed to see Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence being honored as heroes at Dodger Stadium, which is what they actually did. Many of their performances are blasphemous, and their work only displays hate and mockery of Catholics and the Christian faith. I understand that playing baseball is a privilege and not a right. My convictions in Jesus Christ will always come first. Since I have been with the Dodgers, they have been at the forefront of supporting a wide variety of groups. However, inviting the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence to perform disenfranchises a large community and promotes hate of Christians and people of faith. This single event alienates the fans and supporters of the Dodgers, Major League Baseball, and professional sports. People like baseball for its entertainment value and competition. The fans do not want propaganda or politics forced on them. The debacle with Bud Light and Target should be a warning to companies and professional sports to stay true to their brand and leave the propaganda and politics off the field. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe the word of God is true, and in Galatians 6-7 it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. This group openly mocks Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of my faith, and I want to make it clear that I do not agree with nor support the decision of the Dodgers to honor the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 15, signed Blake Trainin. <clears throat> yeah, give that man a hand. I mean, that's, that's standing firm, that's standing up, and that's standing up for your faith. Major League Baseball player, uh, there was something, there was another, I might have been on the Dodgers, I actually know it was on the Toronto Blue Jays, and he came out and said something similar, even way less watered down, and took some, I mean, Canada is, is uh, a horrible place to live right now, in all honesty, okay? They are, they are 
uh, they don't have the Constitution that, that we have, they don't have the Bill of Rights that we have, and so um, whatever freedoms they have are, are way, way, way down the drain, worse than we have it. Anyway, so he stood up as a Toronto Blue Jay player and took this heat, and the Toronto Blue Jays ended up um, releasing him or standing up for his faith. That's really what it ends up being. So, yeah, there is a cost. Count the cost. So th this Blake uh, training guy stands up as well. <clears throat> He's taking a lot of heat. We can pray for him. But that's boldness. That's a man who is, is walking in the faith and mature in the faith. It's interesting, you can, you know, it's okay to openly mock Christianity, and you can make all sorts of the most vile pieces of art with Jesus depicted uh, and the cross depicted and do all sorts of vile acts with a representation of Jesus or Mary or the cross, and, I mean, and that's okay. But when it comes to anything but outright support for the LGBTQ community, no. All must bow the knee to the God of sexual sin and clap and applaud. And it used to be, you know, they would say, we want, a, we want a place at the table, too. We want a place at the table. But, but now, it's, hey, we own the table. And if you want to come and eat at the table, you're going to have to do as we say, wear the right clothes, say the right things, and oh, by the way, I don't see you proudly wearing and waving your rainbow t-shirt and flag. That's where it's at. You know, pride is one of the deadly sins mentioned in the Bible. And they prayed it around. It's one of the deadly sins. Only God gets to define what love is. Only God. And Jesus shows us what perfect love looks like. And how did he do that? Look at Matthew chapter 4. So Matthew 4, at the beginning, this is, it's the temptation of Jesus. He gets led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He's tempted. We get to verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. This is uh, the beginning of his public ministry. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then look what it says. From that time, when's that time? It's the beginning of his ministry. From that time, so John gets imprisoned. Okay, now, I mean, John paved the way. And his ministry was all but wrapped up. He's about to lose his head, literally. So what, whose turn is it? Well, he paved the way for Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Only God gets to define what love is, and foundational to the message of love is repentance. It is a loving thing to tell people and warn people of their sin and the judgment to come. When Je Jesus 
tells the, the lady at the well, like, yeah, you've, you've been married, and, and, and go and get your husband. I don't know. Yeah, you, you don't have a husband. The one you're living with isn't your husband. What, I mean, he's, he's calling her out. He's not trying to, to shame her, but she should be ashamed of her sin. But, he, but he's, he's exposing the sin. But that's a loving thing to do. And when, when the guy born blind gets healed, and then Jesus goes and finds him later, and he's like, hey, stop sinning. I mean, that's a loving thing to do. But foundational to Jesus' message was the message of repentance. This is what he's preaching all along. Repentance, repentance, repentance. And people want a gospel that saves without repentance. It's not possible. It's not possible. You can't have a gospel message that saves without repentance. I mean, you're saying, I want fellowship with God, but I'm not going to turn back to him. That's what you're saying, if you want salvation without repentance. You're saying, I want to stop being an enemy of God, but I'm not going to wave the white flag of surrender. That doesn't make sense. You have to repent. So if, if you want fellowship with God, I mean, you've got to repent. You've got to turn back to him. You've got, you got to turn away from the things you've been doing and turn to him. You want to stop being an enemy of God, you've got to wave the white flag. You do have to surrender. So you have to have the repentance. And Jesus is the one that shows us what love looks like time and time again. Look at each of those examples. Yes, sometimes he's very gracious, kind. Sometimes he's very bold and in your face. And guess what? We all need a healthy mix of all that. And sometimes you get a tough word, and it's like, you know, you're like uh, the, the, the dog that, you know, got, his, you know uh, got in trouble or something. You tuck your tail between your legs, and you go running. Now, receive the correction. Receive the rebuke. Receive the reproof. Yeah, it doesn't feel good. I mean, I admit that. But you got to receive it. And don't get all offended at the person and, and get all upset and get all mad and get all bent out of shape. They're just trying to walk out what the Scripture talks about. If your brother sins against you, what are you supposed to, you're supposed to go? They're just trying to walk out the Scripture. They're trying to do exactly what Jesus did. So God defines what love is. Not some rainbow flag. Not the culture. Not the Dodgers. God. See, if we want to love our neighbor, we don't, we don't look out there. We look to how God himself, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what do we do? We tell people about Jesus. That's loving. That's a very loving thing to do. God demonstrates it to us. We should demonstrate that to others. That's why we looked at a couple weeks ago, 2 Corinthians 5, like we're the, the, uh, we have the ministry of reconciliation. We're the agents of the reconciliation. We're taking that message. God's using us to deliver the truth. That's a loving thing to do. It is very loving. One of the most loving to share the gospel with someone. Think about that. Love your neighbor. Would you want... And you know, if you could go back to the, the, uh, a week, a month, a year before you were saved, I mean, in hindsight, you're like, I wish someone would have shared with me sooner. Yeah. You're probably like, I wish I would have responded sooner too, because some of you heard that message many times, myself included. 
But, but, but the message, I, w- I would have wished that message would have come sooner and sooner and sooner. Why? Because I needed to hear it. Y'all needed to hear it too. It's a message, though, of repentance. Not popular today, but it's the truth. Listen, sometimes the Lord, in His grace, in His mercy, <clears throat> man, He shows me that I have a long way to go. A long way to go. And it felt like this week was one of those weeks where he's just like, Mike, you've got a long way to go. Like, you've still got a lot of growing, a lot of learning, a lot of maturing. None of us have completely matured. Okay, we're still, we're still maturing. And I was listening on Saturday as I was outside working. I was listening to the book of Hebrews. And, and this one, you know, out of all 13 chapters that I listened to, this one verse is the one that popped out to me. I want to share it with you. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. Look what it says, Hebrews 5. We'll start in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although, and here's the verse that stuck out to me, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And, and you know, the Lord was speaking to me and he's like, look, that's what I want for you. I want you to learn obedience through your afflictions and through the suffering and through the things you've gone through this past week. I want you to learn to walk better with me. I want you to learn obedience. Obedience. Just, I mean, just, just knowing the word, and, and, and some of you really know the word well, but just knowing it, well, that's great, but there's got to be obedience to it. There has to be obedience to it. Otherwise, we're just like those Pharisees again. They, they knew it, and they even obeyed it outwardly. But we got to know it, and we got to obey it, and then there's got to be that inner transformation, outward and inner. And, and <clears throat> God is wanting to do a work in each one of us here. And I think it was, it was Spurgeon, and it's more of a paraphrase, but he said, suffering is the best book in the pastor's library. And it's true for, for everyone. We can learn a lot through our suffering. We can learn a lot about ourselves, but we can also learn about God and how gracious he is and how kind he is. And people get delusioned sometimes. They get saved when, you know, whatever, 15, 20, 25, they get, maybe even younger, they get disillusioned, though, because they're like, why am I suffering? And they, they've been maybe given a false message or just haven't heard it clearly, that there is suffering in the Christian life. There, we're not guaranteed to be free from it all. Now, we are guaranteed to be free from it all one day. Okay? Right? So that is what we remember that's the hope. Set your heart on things above. Yeah, the suffering will come to an end someday. 
the injustices one day will be made right. We, we want those shortcuts, right? We want the justice right now. Well, for everybody but ourselves, right? Okay. Because then we'd be in trouble too. But we want justice, we want justice, you know, poured out as soon as the wrong happens against us. But then we want the Lord to be long-suffering and patient with us. We want our family to be patient with us. But we, we snap as soon as they do something wrong. Like we're, we're contradictions if we're not careful. So obedience. He learned obedience through suffering. God wants to take your suffering. He wants to take your affliction. And he's trying to teach you through it. Some of you, he's just trying to humble. He's trying to humble you. And he's just waiting for you to humble yourself. Well, I mean, what does it say? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And what does it say? Like, he's gracious. He's gracious. Even David, remember David <clears throat> broke God's commands and, and he was given three options. Hey, here's the three ways I'm going to punish you. Choose one of the three. And what did he choose? I'll take the one where you're directly doing it because I know that you'll be the most merciful in meeting it out. Three options, and he's like, no, no, do the one where the, the angel of death comes, and I'll take that, because maybe you'll be merciful. The, the armies and, 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 and the people, they're not going to be merciful. But, but I know you might be merciful in your judgment. So who, all that to say, who is this for? Back in Colossians, let's wrap this up. What's all this teaching for? What's all this warning for? Verse 24 shows us. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And he goes on. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. Okay, that's plural there. It's plural in the Greek. And then what does he say? Verse 28. Henry proclaimed, warning, who's he warning? Everyone. And teaching who? Everyone. With all wisdom, that he, that he may present who? Everyone. Mature in Christ. I mean, are you getting the idea here? Who's it for? Everyone, right? Everyone. It's mentioned three times. Paul had everyone in mind with this goal. So you're like, oh, my intellectual abilities aren't that good, or I never went to college. Or, what? Mature in Christ. You don't need a whole bunch of initials behind your name. Mature in Christ. He had everyone in mind, regardless of their intellectual ability, regardless of their giftings. Some get the one talent, some get the three, some get the five. He's not, he's not saying uh, everyone who got the five talents or everyone who got the three talents. No, everyone. He wanted to see this for every single person who knew Christ. It wasn't just a handful. It wasn't just a select few. Not just for the leaders. Everyone. Are you everyone? Yes. So you're included. You're included. God wants you to be growing and maturing in your faith. Each one of us maturing. And he uses different things. Sometimes he uses the warning. Sometimes he, you hear words from me even up here that you don't want to hear. I get it. Sometimes I don't want to hear it. I got to be obedient to preach what's here. The stuff we want to hear and the stuff we don't want to hear. 
the stuff we like to hear and sometimes the stuff we, we don't like to hear. But we need to hear it. And it's usually the stuff that we don't want to hear and we don't like to hear is the stuff we really need to hear. Okay? So open up your ears to receive that and to hear that. But don't just be the hearers, James, right? What does James say? Don't be the hearers. Be the doers. Be the doers. So we're taking it in. We're hearing it. We don't want to hear it. Oh, that's tough. But we don't want to be like that guy in James. Okay. We want to be the hearer. That's also a doer. That's going to follow it out. You want to be mature? You can't just be the hearer. You got to be the doer. You got to be the doer. Walking with Christ each step of the way. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so good to us. You are so good to us. Time and time and time and time and time again, you're good to us. You're amazing. You're beautiful. You're awesome. Thank you that you say, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Wherever we go, you're going to be with us. Wherever we're at, you're with us. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us that you lay down your life thank you that we're co-heirs with you and even though we see some of these things just through a glass dimly like 1 Corinthians 13 says one day face to face one day no more suffering no more affliction Jesus until then strengthen each one of us just like Paul said, with, with, with your energy that powerfully works within us. We have the power, we have the energy, we have the spirit, which means we can do it, we can accomplish it. It's you doing it through us. All glory to you, Jesus. You are a good God. High above the heavens, but also right here with us. Very far and great and transcendent, but very much close and near and imminent. We love you, Jesus. Amen.